If you've had a chance to be with us over these last number of weeks, you will remember that we have been exploring specific practices to anchor us in times of wilderness wandering. So we are in this time called Lent that is preparing us for, the, for Holy Week and Jesus' last life on earth and ultimately his death and resurrection. To best prepare for that, we are going on a journey in our own souls and hearts and minds, but we also recognize that we go on journeys in life as well. And when we feel like we are in those times of wilderness, what are specific practices that can anchor us? So that's what we've been looking at these last number of weeks. You all are an intelligent group. I know that you, are, are, you pay attention so well every week, so I know you have no problem if we do a little pop quiz here this morning and just double check that you are remembering what we've been covering each week. So bear with me here for just a moment. I want to ask us in week one, real quick, real simple, was it the practice of confessing or hang gliding that we explored together, all right? So if you think it was confessing, let me see your hand here just a moment. All right, some, if you think it was hang gliding, can I see? Of course there's some of you that would think that, that's right. So it was confessing, uh, that was week one, number one. Week number two, did we explore swimming or seeking, all right? If you think it was swimming, can I see your hand? All right. If you think it was seeking, can I see your hand? All right, a few more hands. Good, so you're two for two. I am impressed. And then last week, did we explore jumping rope or thirsting? Which of those two? If you think it was jumping rope, can I see your hand? Uh, there's a couple for that. And uh, if you think it was thirsting, let me see that. Good, good, good. So you guys got it. So I saw your eyes get pretty big for a second when we did that about a pop quiz, but you got it. You were on top of each one of those. We've been exploring confessing. We've been exploring what it means to seek. We've been exploring what it means to thirst, and now we come together today and we're going to be exploring what it means to rest. Now when I say that on the surface, all of us, I think, or many of us like to rest. It's not like we're against resting. We enjoy that. Uh, in fact, just a couple weeks ago, maybe we should have done this sermon on the week that we lost an hour of sleep. Uh, my teenage kids were not happy that week that they literally lost an hour of sleep, so we could have done it then, but we're doing it here this morning. It's easy to think that resting is an easy thing to do, but I would submit to you that of all the practices we look at, resting might be the most deceptively difficult of the practices to practice. Because we say we like rest, I think we want rest, but we increasingly live in a day and age and a time where it is difficult to be at rest. In fact, right now, about 35% of folks in our culture do not get enough rest. And right now, the way that is generally assumed is that if you get under seven hours of sleep, uh, that's not enough rest for you. And right now, a lot of people get about 6.8 hours of sleep a night. What's interesting is if you go back to 1942, people then in 1942 got about an hour more sleep then than we do now. And what's even more interesting to me is if you go back to 1910, people got on average over nine hours of sleep a night then compared to now. The irony in that to me is that over that amount of time, we have more and more technology, which allows more and more to be done and accomplished. You would think that with the technology possibly making our life easier, we would have more time for rest, not less. But that has not been the case. In fact, I think it was the 1950s that there were some people who actually thought that as technology increased, we would get to the time where there was only going to be 20 hour a week work weeks. Now that sounds crazy to us now. We feel like we're running all the time and trying to keep up in all kinds of ways. It's insane to think of really only literally working about 20 hours a week. Increasingly, we find it hard to stop. Increasingly, we find it hard to pause. 
because there's always so much to do. One of the differences, I think, is that if, let's say, you used to get done with work at about 5 o'clock, even if you had a 10-minute drive home, in those 10 minutes, you could pause, you could breathe, you could regroup, you could let work behind, you get ready for going to your home, going to your family. But now, as soon as we get any moment of margin, what do we do? We check our texts, we check Facebook, we check Messenger, we check all hundred different ways, Twitter, or whatever it might be, and respond to all of those people. And so we're literally just going from one moment to the next, and rarely are we stopping to pause or breathe. Increasingly, because we do not have margin in our lives, it is difficult for us to stop and rest. And if it's not just physically, some of us can get ourselves to stop physically, but it's our mind that continues to, to run and go and go and go, and we just have a hard time settling it down. This is especially true for some younger folks among us. Various statistics say that as much as 97% of teenagers do not get enough rest every night. Now, I'm not totally surprised at that. I have teenagers in my house in between schoolwork and then homework and sports and jobs and chores and anything else that comes up along the way. Their lives are incredibly busy and full. Other statistics say as many as 7 out of 10 college students do not get enough rest every night. And if we think the idea of rest is really not a big deal, consider this. Some estimates say that our lack of rest causes the U.S. economy to lose about $411 billion every year. That's not with an M, that's with a B. $411 billion when people are not rested enough. Seeking rest, having enough rest, finding rest, it is an issue for us even if we want it, even if we like it. Uh, there's an Australian pastor named Mark Sayer, and he uses a phrase called ambient anxiety. And he says it's just that pervasive feeling in our culture where we feel like we're always on edge somehow, even if we're not exactly sure why, in part because we have been sped up so fast. And that as our world is going ever faster and our culture is going ever faster, even as we want to slow down, we find it hard to do so because we get swept up in the tide of all the movement and everything that's going on. So what do we do in a world, in a culture that is moving so fast, and maybe we want rest, but we're having trouble finding rest, what do we do? I am so glad you asked, because that's what we're going to explore here this morning, and Psalm 91 is going to help us with that. So if you have a Bible app on your phone, I want to invite you to join with me in this, or if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to look at a number of verses, especially in Psalm 91 here this morning, and as we do that, one of the first things I want us to realize as we get ready to go through this psalm is that there are three different parts. There are three pieces of an outline here. Verses 1 through 4 are going to remind us of a remarkable promise that God is making to us. Verses 5 through 13 are going to describe what would be a misunderstanding of the promise. And verses 14 through 16 then are going to describe the real promise that's being given to us. So first, a remarkable promise then misunderstanding of the promise, and then the real promise at the end. That's what's being given to us. And the promise that is being made to us, the promise that's being given to us is this, that God is our shelter. Now, the reason that that is really important is that when we can understand that and when we can live into that reality, we will find rest. When we accept, when we embrace, when we live into God as our shelter. Now, as you go through the first number of verses here in Psalm 91, there are a number of images that are given that highlight the idea of shelter. So if you look with me in verse 1 of Psalm 91, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. If you continue then, it says, I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge 
He is my fortress, my God in whom I trust. If you continue on to verse four, it says, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So there's a bunch of images there being given to describe shelter. There's shield, there's refuge, there's rampart, all of these things. But the image that I want to ask us to focus on for a few minutes together here this morning is what we find in verse 4, this idea of the wings providing refuge. And literally, I want you to picture for just a moment a mother bird with her wings outstretched over her young ones, providing protection of whatever kind she can for them. In fact, what I want to ask you to do is wherever you are seated, assuming that you can do this, I just want to ask you to literally take your arms like this, kind of put them out like a wing, like, please, just indulge me for a moment, all right? Thanks. I know you guys are like, really? Yes, I want you to hold your arms out like that, right? Now, you don't have to do this, right? You don't have to do that, but just hold them like this. And now what I want you to do, just hold them that way for the rest of the sermon, all right? Can you do that for me? So, like, so I, that would not be very easy. You can put them down. That's all right. But really, very simply, I don't want us to just hear about this idea of information about wings and protection and refuge. I literally want us to embody it, to live into it, to embrace it. Because that is the only way that we are going to find rest in our ever-increasing world, which is speeding up more and more and more. One of the interesting things, though, about this idea of the wings is that at the same time, it's providing two opposite ideas. On the one hand, picture again, mama got her wings out. On the one hand, there's a sense of strength and protection. Uh, there's that sense of mama bear kind of thing, like you are not going to mess with my kids. That form of protection portrays a sense of strength, of that fortress kind of thing. That happens with this, this image of the wings out, but at the very same time, there is this sense of closeness, tenderness, compassion, love. So it's almost this holy paradox of strength and power on the one hand, loving tenderness on the other. And so what we see here is a strong protection and a tender love all at the same time, being portrayed with this image of the bird with the wings over her young, protecting them, loving them, all at the same time. Now what's interesting in this, and we've mentioned this a number of times, anytime we find an image given in Scripture, it is helpful to look in other places in Scripture where the same image might be used. I don't know about you, but I had not realized how many places in Scripture there are that have this image of the bird, the wings out, protecting their young. I'm not going to go through all of them this morning, but I do want to mention a couple. So for example, in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verse 12, there's a gentleman named Boaz. He is a landowner. He's speaking to a woman named Ruth who is collecting food for her mother-in-law, and Boaz says this, may the Lord repay you to Ruth for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So there it is. Also, in the book of Psalms, which we are in, if you back up a few chapters to chapter 36, verse 7, it says, how priceless is your unfailing love, both high and low among men. Find refuge in the shadow of your wings. There it is again. Psalm 57, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. So there it is. We find it in numerous places in Scripture. This is not an isolated event here in chapter 91. Now what I want us to also understand is that in verse 2 it literally says, I will say to the Lord, he's my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That phrase, my God in whom I trust, that is covenant language. 
And it's really almost a verbal pact where they're saying, all right, God, I'm going to place my trust in you, and by me placing my trust in you, that's your way of agreeing to you will protect me from this point on. All right, God, I'm going to trust you, and if I put my trust in you, what that should mean for my life is that you're going to protect me somehow going forward. You're going to provide shelter for me going forward so that I can find rest in any situation going forward. And that's actually what the psalm lays out for us. However, the question becomes, how will God do that? If we say, all right, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you're going to provide shelter for me. The psalm's going to tell us how, but how is it in our mind that's actually going to work? And that's where these next number of verses, the middle ones, verses 5 through 13, come in, because verses 5 through 13 describe something that we wish was the case, but it's probably not. So if you look here in these verses this morning, like look what it says in verses 5 and 6. This sounds so good. It sounds like we say, all right, God, I'm going to trust in you, and suddenly it sounds like we are on easy street. Because look what it says in verses 5 and 6. I'll trust in you. And God says, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. All right, God, I believe in you. No more fear, no more terror, no more pestilence, no more plague. Awesome. Then look what it says in verse 10. Trust in you, God, and what will happen? No harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. This is awesome. This is so good. I'm going to put my trust in you, God, and look at all these promises you're making for me. Look then in verse 12. I put my trust in you, and then they will lift you up in their hands so that you're not even going to strike your foot against a stone. This is so good. Why wouldn't we all follow this God? Because look at all these wonderful promises that are being made. However, is that what it's saying? Is that really what is being lifted up, that if we trust in God, then magically everything else in our life will be better? Magically everything else will just fall into place? Is that what these verses are really sharing with us? And I love the three points that Tim Keller pulls out about this passage, and he's like, eh, probably not. <laughs> right, let's, let's take a closer look at this, because first of all, odds are anytime we really, 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 really want something, we probably should take a second look and pause before discovering or finding out if that's really the case. And in this case, doesn't it sound so good that if we trust God and follow God, he's magically going to do everything that we want? I know I want that. I want my life to be on easy street. I want everything to fall in place. I mean, I want that badly. So the very fact that I want it so badly is probably an indication that I may not be quite on with what God is actually trying to share with me. It reminds me, oh, I can't really watch a game unbiasedly if one of my kids is playing. I mean, I'm watching the game, and as fair as I try to be, it amazes me. The refs are always out for my kid. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, you've probably had the same thing, and I'm trying to watch biasedly, but because I'm pulling so hard, I'm no longer watching objectively. Same thing right now, NCAA time, one of the best times of the entire year, especially, you know, for your team if it's doing well. And I was watching Duke the other night. I couldn't believe how the refs were against them the entire time. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So, no, but what is it? I can't watch that objectively, right, because I'm pulling for that team. It's a little bit like that here. We so badly want this. We so much pull for this. Are we really looking or hearing it objectively? Probably not. Number two, we know that scripturally there are many examples where people have followed God faithfully, put their trust in God, and it didn't all work out. It wasn't all perfect. Life was not easy street. Think about somebody like Job. 
He had done everything exactly right, and at a point in his life, he literally lost everything, everything, for a long time. How do you explain that? He had been trusting God, he did everything faithfully, and yet life was really hard. How about Jesus? Jesus did everything perfectly, put his trust in God, and ends up dying on a cross, betrayed and rejected. How do you explain that? Is it if we put our trust in God that shelter means easy street for the rest of our life? According to examples in Scripture, probably not. But the one that is most interesting to me is this. This idea that it might be Satan himself who wants us to believe the lie that if we put our trust in God, then everything will work out perfectly. In fact, this is particularly interesting to me. There's only one time in all of Scripture where Satan is quoting Scripture. And it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, and it's right in the time period we've been talking about with Jesus. He's in the wilderness. He is getting ready to do his three years of ministry, but before he does that, he is in a time of temptation in the wilderness. He's tired. He's exhausted. He faces three big challenges and temptations from Satan, and on the third temptation, Satan comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, put your trust in God. I mean, you, you can trust this God, right? In fact, it even says in Scripture, and he picks out the most particular of the promises. He goes to the one that says, God says if you trust in him, he's not even going to let your toe be stubbed. The most particular, the most almost obscure one or, or explicit one, not even your toe will be stubbed. What is it that Satan is trying to do in those moments with Jesus? He is trying to plant the seed with Jesus. That Jesus, if your life suddenly becomes hard, or difficult, or you stub your toe, well then, Jesus, you can't trust that God anymore. Because look, it says if you follow him, if you put your trust in him, if you rest in him, if you have shelter in him, these bad things won't happen. So Jesus, if something bad comes along, you can't trust that God. And it is Satan's way of trying to derail Jesus and all the rest of his ministry. And honestly, he does the same thing with you and I because you and I so very often, we too want easy street. And we too say, God, I'm gonna follow you, but boy, if something bad happens, I'm off this way. And there's nothing more that Satan would love than for us to believe that lie. And that's what he's getting at here in these words and in these verses. And so for us to read verses five to 13 and think, man, everything is just going to work out magically and wonderfully if I put my trust in God. Is that what it's really sharing? Because if we believe that, we will never ever have rest because life will be hard and bad things will happen and we will stub our toe and we will lose loved ones and, 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 and. What is it in this psalm then that Satan doesn't want us to understand? What is it in all of the Old Testament scripture that Satan could have pulled out to share with Jesus? Why this verse? What is the secret? What is the power he doesn't want us to understand? I think it is this, that we have to learn to trust God in trouble in order to handle trouble. There's a big difference here of saying not any trouble and living into trouble to be able to handle the trouble. And I think Satan knows if you and I can get this into our minds, our hearts, and souls, not only do we live into a sense of rest and shelter no matter what the storms of life may bring, but he knows that an, a really big problem has just been unleashed against the kingdom of evil. 
Because here's what's going on this morning, I think, with Satan in regards to this whole verse. It's not just that Satan wants to derail us from following God. It's not just that Satan wants us to have a shallow faith by thinking that life has to be perfect and the moment it's not, I reject you, God. It's an incredibly shallow faith. It's not just that that Satan is, is trying to get us to. It's also what Satan, Satan is trying to avoid. And here's what he's trying to avoid. Can you imagine a people who in the midst of life, no matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter how much the persecution, no matter how great the pain, instead of turning away from God, turn to God, even in a greater way, do you know how much that is going to make the kingdom of evil shake in fear? I loved singing this morning the name of Jesus and the darkness trembling. It's not this that Satan wants us to have a shallow faith. He's worried that if we live into this promise, the way that it's laid out that we turn to God in our times of trouble, through trouble, and find our rest and shelter there, he knows there is no force on earth, no force of evil so great that can overcome the people of God. And God's church and God's individuals will turn to and grow stronger in the midst of difficulty, not weaker. We will find greater rest no matter what the circumstances, not less. And that worries Satan and that's what's being laid out here in this passage with us here this morning and that's what he doesn't want us to get so he's going through all of this and this whole idea that this is where we find our shelter and we see this so oftentimes in scripture just really quickly we could give lots of examples but think of Joseph those of you that might remember Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis really quick he had, he had a bunch of brothers but Joseph was the favored child any of you who are parents the moment we pick a favored child, aunts, uncles, grandparents, the moment we pick a favored child, we are sowing poison into our families. That's what was happening with Joseph. He was the favored kid. His dad was very clear, you are my favorite. So Joseph became very egotistical. He thought the world revolved around him. He wanted it to revolve around him. He was used to all the attention. Guess how it made the other brothers feel? They grew to hate him. They hated him so much they were going to kill, them, kill him, but at the last moment they decided, you know what, let's sell him off instead. So they sell him to a group of foreigners. He becomes a slave. He becomes a slave in a household. Now picture Joseph, center of attention. Now he's alone. Picturing him calling out to God, Lord, help me out. What happened? And instead of answering his prayers the way he wanted, he becomes a slave in a household. He continues to work hard. He rises up among the slaves in the household, but then he is falsely accused by the household owner's wife of, of sexual misconduct, even though he didn't do it, and he's thrown into prison for it. Some answer prayer that is. And so now here he is, he is sitting in prison, falsely accused. How must he have felt after being the favored son for so long? And he keeps calling out to God, but God doesn't answer the way that he hopes and wants and expects. Finally, somebody comes along in the prison who has the possibility to help Joseph out if he will just remember to tell other people about Joseph and help get him out of jail, except the guy forgets. And so again, a number of years, here's Joseph just sitting in the prison, sitting in the prison, calling out to God, calling out to God. God's not answering the way he wants. There's turmoil, there's trouble, there's pain, there's frustration. And yet, at the right time, God raises up Joseph to be a leader in Egypt to literally save the lives of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives when there's a severe famine in the land. Now, what's happening during that whole time? 
all that time that Joseph was in prison, feeling like his prayers weren't being answered, suffering under all these circumstances, God was at work honing his character, his grit, his will, so that at the right time, he would be prepared to lead. In essence, God protected Joseph from himself through that entire time period, transforming him from an egotistical, selfish, self-centered individual and bringing about the psychological healing he needed to become the leader that Egypt needed to save thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives. God all along was protecting Joseph, working in his life, even when in the circumstances it didn't like God, look like God was responding. And God does this all the time. One of my favorite verses, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God has this amazing way, no matter what we're going through, to offer shelter, refuge, strength, tenderness. That no matter how difficult things are, to move in such a way in refuge to bring us to a place of goodness. And Satan doesn't want us to get that. Satan doesn't want us to live in that understanding. So picture again the wings providing strength, providing tenderness, so that we can have ultimately rest no matter what's going on. And that's why for us, we must trust that God, must trust God in trouble so that we can handle trouble, so that ultimately we can find rest no matter what. No matter what life may bring our way. So you've got this promise, then you've got this misunderstanding that we think trusting God means life is forever going to be easy. And then you get to this final part, these last few verses that reframe the whole thing so we get the correct understanding. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Notice it says, I will be with him in trouble. Not no trouble. I'll be with him in trouble. So for us to rest in God means that we experience the strength of God and the tenderness of God so that we can rest. But here's the really beautiful thing. It's even more than just strength and tenderness. Part of what Jesus is saying here, and part of the imagery, I should say, that's being used here, is that in Psalm 91, when it gives this imagery of the mother bird, it's actually starting to point us forward to another time that's going to come. It's actually foreshadowing what is about to come. Remember, this is the Old Testament. Jesus has not come about yet. But these verses in Psalms, when it says, I will be with you in trouble, Part of what it's pointing to is something that we already know but tend to take for granted. God in Jesus is going to come to earth and be in our midst, on this earth, literally in our troubles. The invulnerable becomes vulnerable. He's literally going to enter into our stuff. He's going to get into our trouble and our circumstances with us so that he can offer us not just strength, not just tenderness, but incredibly, he can, he can take it on for us. It's even more than rest that we discover. We discover a whole new way of being, and here's how we know that. Jesus himself references this imagery of the bird, the wings, take refuge under me. Look what it says in Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not 
willing. Now, you and I have a tendency to read that, and it's like, oh, isn't that sweet? Jesus is talking to the city of Jerusalem, he's gathering their little chickies, and they're warm, and they're fuzzy, and like, oh, isn't that so nice? They come in. No. If you read the context of this entire passage, it's a context about judgment. And Jesus saying, Jerusalem, because of the things you've done, because of your sin and your brokenness, because you keep rejecting me, the weight of the world, judgment is literally coming upon you. The sin and the wrath, because it's going to fall upon you. This is heavy and this is intense. And what does Jesus say? I want to do this for you. I want to invite you, my children, under my wings. What is Jesus doing when he says that? He's not just offering strength. He's not just offering protection. He's actually substituting his life for theirs. How? Literally picture a bird holding out their wings for their young ones. When it's raining, who does the rain fall on? The mother bird. She takes on the rain so her young ones don't have to. When you are in the beating heat and the sun is pelting down on you, who's taking on the heat? It's the mother bird as she's protecting her young. If there's a predator coming her way and she gets between the predator and her children or her, her birds, who is she protecting? Her kids, what is she doing at the same time? Giving up her life for theirs. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that in this time as judgment is coming down upon us or upon you, Jerusalem, and falling upon you, I will do this so that the judgment falls on me and not on you. And when we realize that, then we can find rest to know it's not even just strength to give you rest. It's not even just tenderness to give you rest. It's a brand new identity because I've substituted my life for yours and in that you will always find rest. A number of years ago uh, at the uh, Yellowstone National Park, true story, a bad fire had ravaged through the entire park. And some park rangers were walking through after, after the fire had blazed through. And just picture in your mind, it was like one of those movie scenes. Like everything's charred, black, wisps of smoke. Park rangers are walking through and they're looking at the trees that have been burned and charred and down to the stumps. And they're walking through and it's kind of that creepy, eerie feeling. Like feeling like nothing's alive because it's not. Everything's been burned literally to death. And they're walking along and they get to a stump in particular and they look down and they see a particularly eerie sight. There is a mother bird, upright, wings out. Again, true story. But she's dead. She's charred. She's just ash. She's not alive. And they're looking at this mother bird. And they go over and they hear a sound. And not sure what the sound is. And they reach down and they push over the ashes, the bird, she falls over. And there underneath were three young birds, her own. Now what had that mother bird done? She had taken on the fire so they could live. She had taken on the wrath so they could live. She had taken on death so they could live. When Jesus is on the cross, what does he do? He takes on the fire so we can live. He takes on our sin so we can live. He takes on death so that we can live. And when we understand that, we will find rest no matter what the circumstances of life bring. Because Jesus is doing this. So today, let us rest in that reality.
Let us rest in that knowledge and embody it for all of who we are. Now, you and I are not a people who are very good at listening, of pausing, of resting. So here's what I want to ask us to do. Because it's so easy just to now wipe our hands and quickly move on. But I want to ask us this morning to just pause a few moments and rest in what we've just talked about. And the way I want to ask us to do that is this. I'm going to read scripture, and after each passage of scripture, it's really just a sentence, I just want to invite you to pause and rest and drink and be filled. You will hear noises, you will hear people moving around, that's fine. Just for a few moments, though, before we go today, let's try to rest in the arms, under the wings of Christ. Would you join with me as we pray and as we rest together? Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6 remind us, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Exodus 14, 14 says, The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Psalm 62, 5 says, Yes, my soul. Find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Lamentations 3.24 says, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Matthew 6, 34 says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. 
each day has enough trouble of its own.